Hey everybody, welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, really exciting to uh, be um, uh, to to be back from vacation. <laughs> thank, thank you, thank you, Tony. The beard is coming along. Uh, <laughs> Karita, I'm glad that Lance approves. Yeah. Well, of course, though, Karita, see, the most important thing is that at least temporarily, my wife approves. This, honestly, this is the reason why I have grown a beard because I've always been kind of curious to grow a beard. I've never have in my entire adult life, other than a very brief college experimentation. Uh, and uh, I've been married almost 20 years now, and my wife has never given her stamp of approval on the whole facial hair thing. Uh, so um, uh, she just recently gave that for reasons I don't even understand, uh, finally. Uh, so I, I decided to jump on it. My, my father, both of my brothers have beards. So, you know, it's, uh, I, I, th I said, hey, why not? You know, let's give, let's give, let's give it a shot. So anyway, it's all good fun. Uh, my wife could change her mind at any minute, though, so, you know, you know don't get used to it. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, um, it's, it's the itchy stage, though. I try not to, you know, I can I, you know, stroke my beard wisely, I suppose. Um, anyway, good evening. Let's talk about the return of the shadow. Actually, though, first I wanted to do uh, a little announcement Um a new thing I haven't talked about much, but which I'm getting really excited about. And this is a program that we are starting up this summertime. This is a totally new kind of program for Mythgard and Signum. Never done anything like this before. Um, and that is a free program for middle school students that we're going to be launching this summer, which uh, I'm sort of playfully calling Hobbit Immersion Camp. Um, and uh, the idea is it's a two-week program where uh, student, the students involved are going to read through The Hobbit in two weeks, and it's going to be a hybrid program in the sense that on the one hand it's going to be a Signum Online program, so um, there will be daily sessions uh, every day, you know, five days a week for the, for the, for the two weeks. Uh, the students will be reading, you know, of course, as you know, there are 19 chapters in The Hobbit, so about two chapters a day throughout those two weeks. So they'll have daily reading. They'll have daily sessions, uh, not with me. I'll probably I'll I'll, I'll do a couple Q and A sessions, I think. But uh, they will be in the hands of a real experienced middle school teacher who's been teaching um, uh, who's been teaching the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings as a middle school literature elective for ten years. She she just does great stuff with that. Um, so she's going to be teaching it. Um, DMA Binkley, longtime uh, Signum and Mythgard person. And, uh, and the cool thing is that we're going to be partnering with local libraries is how this is going to work. So you sort of set up a chapter at your local library. We'll you know, be in touch with them and we can uh, you sort of tell them what's involved. It's really low key for the libraries uh, to be able to do. It's mostly just a, the opportunity to give kids involved a chance to have a place where they can get together, have some discussion, work on their... They're going to be doing some some projects and stuff in connection with their reading and journaling and stuff. Um, so you have a place where they can kind of get together and do that uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a live group in addition to doing the... Or as, a, as an in-person group, rather. Um, so... Anyway, it's going to be really cool. And Yana, absolutely, it would be really neat to do uh, uh, to have some uh, some groups over in in the Netherlands involved. This totally doesn't have to be just an American thing. 
Um, so, uh, so yeah, we will, I will have, uh, we're finalizing, uh, we, we're basically just having like a, a one page flyer that you can just kind of bring to your local library and say, here's this thing going on and they can get in touch with us and we can give, we can answer whatever questions they have. Again, it's going to be really simple, really low maintenance for the libraries though. I think it's kind of fun. Like basically if a library wants to do sort of a really laid back version where they don't do very much they can if they want to totally get into it like if they've got somebody on their library staff who's really into Tolkien who wants to like lead daily discussions and stuff and it's cool like there's you know they can kind of do as much as they want uh, but they don't have to do um, an enormous amount so I'm going to be uh, I'm, I'll, I'll be sharing more information I can give you guys an update next week uh, hopefully I should I should be able to have the link of the flyer that I can share with you guys next week but I just wanted to mention that this was happening because I think it's going to be really fun um, it's totally free um, so no charge at all either for the students or for the library um, uh, you know we just want to get kids and, and families involved reading Tolkien and talking about it and having a good time this summer so uh, it should be uh, it should be really it should be really fun um, <laughs> does one actually need to be in middle school to participate? Uh, well, it is designed for kids like the age 10 to 13. Uh, you know, we're willing, of course, to stretch that. I think I don't, you know, we're not going to be, uh, you know, doing retinal scans at the door or anything. If there's, you know, kids slightly younger, slightly older who want to be involved, um, uh, the sort of adult ed version of that is this, basically, <laughs> like the Mythgard Academy and the other things that we do are essentially the uh, the, uh, the 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 adult versions. We've never done, you know, really tried to kind of to engage with kids, mostly because I don't I don't do middle school that well. I'm just not used to. I, I, I've been teaching, you know, the college level. I've been teaching adults basically all my, you know, my whole professional life, and I'm just not as good at uh, engaging the middle school age group uh, with this stuff as, as as I am talking with adults. So I've never really tried this before, um, but I'm excited. I think it's going to be really cool. Uh, and we do have, uh, uh, we do have a, right, Tony, yeah, the, the adult version is my book, essentially, right, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, yeah, anyhow, so, so this is going to be a lot of fun, so I just wanted to let you know that this was happening, it's scheduled for July, by the way, um, the two weeks starting July 10th, um, so we have the, the week of the 4th of July, uh, and then after that is, uh, is the, the, the two weeks of, of, uh, Hobbit Immersion Camp. So, anyway. There we go. That's my announcement for tonight. Let us jump in to the Return of the Shadow. It's been two weeks now, uh, for and I think, by the way, though it was a narrow vote last week, it ended up being a very wise one uh, in the end. It all worked out perfectly because the internet connection I ended up having this past week was bad. Uh, it was uh, I would not have been able to teach uninterruptedly. I'm sure the connection would have probably dropped at least once during class, which would have been very frustrating. So we were better off uh, leaving it aside last week. But anyway, we're back this week. And one of the things that I wanted to kind of observe at the beginning, I know that many people, and I am very much among them, you know, kind of tease Tolkien kind-heartedly, you know, about um, his tendency to go back and start over again rather than continuing forward and stuff. Um, but, you know, one thing that really has been striking me in reading through the Phase 2 text uh, that Christopher is presenting here in these chapters 
is what a really good idea it was for Tolkien to go back, especially watching as we did through phase one, how these ideas just emerged and the extent to which he didn't premeditate. I mean, we saw him premeditating, right? We saw him projecting forward, but all of the things, the, the, the hugely pivotal things, which he didn't anticipate and just kind of happened along the way. And, you know, the ways in which, you know, this story kind of threw out roots and branches that he didn't expect. Um, it does seem that stopping at Rivendell and going back uh, really was a good idea because the what we're seeing now, um, and we saw it to an extent in the last chapter, in in his uh, the revision of chapter one. Of course, even more dramatically, I think, in his revision of chapter two, the way in which he moved from the original beginning of the story in which there was so little plan, right? Other than like, let's get a hobbit who is the heir of Bilbo and let's kind of kick him out into the blue and, and send him on an adventure of some kind or other, right? Um, the the way in which we go from that to what is almost a fully formed Shadows of the Past, right? I mean, the, the, the chapter two of The Fellowship of the Ring is has gone from, you know, I don't know, not quite zero, but from, what, like 10% to 90%, uh, you know, something like that, uh, in this in this one go. And it's really interesting, it's really dramatic to see that and to see him working through, now working, I was about to say working backwards, but of course it's not backwards. Um, starting again at the beginning and this time having all that stuff in mind, knowing in advance about the ring raids, knowing in advance about all this other, uh, you know, about, uh, about the ring, right, and how the ring is going to develop and so many of those ideas uh, which come together here in this chapter, uh, really in full form for the first time. Uh, and it's really fun to see. And of course we get Sam, which is also, of course, really great to see. Um, it was also the timing of this, uh, was also kind of surreal because of course, going back and thinking about chapter two at length. And uh, you know, just last night I finished our month and a half, half trip through the published chapter two, uh, in exploring the Lord of the Rings class. So I'm having all this like crossover issues. Um, uh, but I mean, one of the things indeed that I was talking about in last night's class, we looked at the, the scene of Sam's infenestration. I have to give, uh, uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings student way uh, 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 credit for that word, which has become like my new favorite word. Uh, I always loved the word defenestrate. Uh, it was a, a favorite verb of mine, uh, in high school. Uh, and the idea of Sam Gamgee being infenestrated by, uh, uh, by Gandalf is something that has uh, caused me delight for, uh, for a fortnight now. But anyway, um, when we were looking at that scene with Sam, I was really struck by the significance of the emergence of the Sam Gamgee and Ted Sandyman dialogue just from scratch, right? The way in which um, the, uh, th that emerges almost completely full-formed, that conversation, and what we see about Sam in that conversation, the way in which that's just clearly the initial conception, right? When he's when he's making the Sam Gamgee character, what is like step one of the Sam Gamgee character, and step one is clearly his imagination, right? His love of stories and his, uh, you know, enchantment with elves and, uh, uh, and, you know, him believing those stories, whatever Ted Sandyman may say, um, that's the core, it seems, of Sam's character based on what we see. And it's really neat, really neat to see that. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tony, I agree. Tony says, uh, it's a testament to the strength of the final story that it seems like Sam and all those late additions feel like they've always been there. Absolutely, Tony. I mean, it's one of the things that is really remarkable about Tolkien. And I would say, you know, two of the things that I think that we can see really clearly, right, as we go through The Return of the Shadow, two things that I would emphasize as two of Tolkien's just greatest strengths as a writer one is his willingness to go, you know, where the story takes him, um, not to kind of be for, you know, to, to make a plan and force your way through it. That would seem like it would be a virtue, right? And for some writers, I suppose it is a virtue. Um, but for Tolkien, it's his, well, his humility in his approach to the story, right? His willingness to just say, uh, I don't know, like, here it comes. And I'm, I'm going with it, right? Um and that's where, of course, all of these wonderful things have been emerging. But then it's not just that, right? Because that by itself leads to chaos and disorganization. Um, so, Tony, what's really remarkable, right, is that ability then for him to take that stuff and go through and do that incredible retcon work so that it does sound, I agree, Tony, as if these things had always been there from the beginning, right? Um Especially given when we look at the text side by side, like the phase one text and the phase two text, we've talked about this before, the way in which he is so conservative, like he changes so comparatively little, and yet with a few tweaks here and there, he can integrate those new stories into the old story and transform it into a thing which all works together and you'd never know, right? Um and I, I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of amazing, Stephen. Yes, exactly. Stephen Cover says he started writing, then got swept off his feet wherever the road took him. Yes, uh, it is quite like Bilbo's experience, right? The experience from that song that Bingo sings uh, first. That idea of being just kind of swept off your feet, right? Um, getting swept off his feet is certainly seems to be, I don't know if that was meant to be autobiographical, right? I don't know if he was thinking about the, his own experience as a, uh, as a, as a writer, you know, his own relationship sort of to that road. Right. But, uh, but anyway, it was, um, certainly, it's certainly an apt description of what we've seen. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Tony, exactly. It's, it is about discovery instead of creation or, 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 uh, um, you know, imagination or, or, or composition even exactly. Um, it is about discovery and that's what we see, how he, we see him talking and it's just, it's so cool to see that happening. Um, but all right, let's, uh, Let's dig in and get into some passages here. Let's look at chapter two as it evolves, because there are certainly some, some, some small points I want to take notice of as we go through, and of course also looking at the bigger picture uh, and thinking about how it, how it fits together. Um, let's see. Okay. One, this is a small point. I didn't know where to put this, so let's just do this at the beginning, but I thought this was kind of interesting. Um... Frodo, or Frodo II, was the great-great-grandson of Frodo I, otherwise known as the Old Took, and the heir and rather desperate hope of the whole of Took, as the clan was called. Um, I think it's fascinating that Frodo is the name, is the name of the Old Took, right? Um, and it's just kind of thinking for a second about the associations with Frodo, um, the associations that the name Frodo has and has been building in Tolkien's mind. We already saw the passage, right, uh, in his, 
queries and alterations passage at the end of phase one, what Christopher calls phase one, um, where we we saw him tantalize us with the prospect of changing Bingo's name to Frodo and then backing out, right? Uh, so we know he's already thinking about it. Um, uh, but of course, we've also seen him using the name Frodo all the way through, right? Frodo has been one of the two companions. It's been Odo and Frodo, uh, the companions of Bingo from the beginning. Um, and now we have the name Frodo kind of throwing down some more roots, right? Um, Frodo Took, the Frodo Took, who is the friend of Bingo, is Frodo the Second, right? And the old Took is named Frodo. And that, to me, is really fascinating, right? Um, because the old Took, obviously, is really important. I mean, it goes back to The Hobbit. He's this... I don't know, this like quasi-mythic figure, like the root of Tookdom. I mean, Tookishness is a big deal uh, in The Hobbit, obviously. Uh, it is that adventurous impulse that we see that rises up in Bilbo, uh, and which is obviously perpetuates itself among generations of Took, but it seems to all go back to the old Took, and of course the old Took's friendship with Gandalf, of course. Um, and we hear about things like, of course, remember in The Hobbit, the magic diamond studs, right, that Gandalf gave to the old Took uh, that uh, that fastened themselves up. The, um, the fireworks at the old Took's birthday parties, right? So this association of... Of, uh, of of magic and wonder with the old Took and, and that sort of, uh, you know, the wellspring of Tookishness. And now he's named Frodo, right? So we, we already had Frodo. And you'll remember that Frodo's character was uh, in the first phase, right? The Frodo Took character was the one who gets a lot of the sort of sensitive, right, imaginative... Uh, I really like elves kind of dialogue, which is eventually going to be given to Sam, right? Much of it, not all of it, but much of it is going to be given to Sam. Um, and anyway, so, you know, we, 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 we see, he seems to have, Frodo Took, as we met him in phase one, seems to have a, a pretty significant dose of a kind of a dreamy version of, of the Tookish spirit, right? Um, and that he's now being linked in the genealogies to the old Took himself through his name is really interesting. And obviously we're paying special interest uh, uh, to er, special attention to the name Frodo and the implications of the name Frodo, or the associations with the name Frodo, because of course, obviously he's going to choose to make this his protagonist's name. And so it's kind of interesting to see in a sense where it comes from in Tolkien's mind. Right. Um, and I, th so in a sense, it is now at this point, right in phase two, the name Frodo has kind of settled down as like the, like ultimate took name, right? I mean, it's the name of the old took himself. Right. And so Frodo took Fro who is Frodo. The second is, uh, is directly connected back to him. Frodo Baggins, when, you know, when young Master Baggins uh, ceases to be Bingo and will become Frodo, he's not anymore going to be that same kind of lineage. I mean, he'll be a descendant of the old Took. I mean, who isn't a descendant of the old Took? Uh, but uh, he, he, so he, but he, you know, he, he's not going to be the, uh, the heir of the old Took. Um, and of course, the old Took's name isn't going to be Frodo anymore. Um, but it seems to me very interesting that all of those associations um, 
are sort of shifting, and you know, the idea of of that that Frodo in his mind is sort of connected with that. And yes, Frodo is uh, uh, unimportant name. It comes from the name Froda, which is. Uh, uh, which is a name, which, which is, as I recall, it's, it's in, he's in Beowulf, isn't he in Beowulf, Frodo? Um, is it an important hero? Um, as the name is associated with wisdom and things. So um, uh, uh, Frodo is, is, in that sense, is, the, the name is always a significant one and would be even if we didn't have these other associations. But that's why I'm particularly interested in the... Uh, in the associations that he have, and particularly that, that one little reference, the air and rather desperate hope of the whole of Took, right? Um, that's uh, uh, really fascinating. Yes, Tony, I thought it was re- referenced in Beowulf. I was, I was, uh, I was, I was pretty sure it was. Um, rather desperate hope. So again, it's not just he's not merely inheriting prestige, right? In the name, there's also that sense of. Um, uh, there's also that sense of. Uh, um, well, that, that desperation, right? Will he live up to the name, essentially, right? I don't know. Of course, we'll never see whether Frodo took would have lived up to it, um, but um, uh, but it's interesting. So, just brief note in passing, um, and yet, Tim, I also love the 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 pun on uh, the hole of Took, right? It's you know like the 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 the, the hole where the Tooks live, and like the the, the W H O L E. Um, and oh yeah, uh, no, Veronica. Uh, the old Took's name in uh, the final version is Gerontius, which does not seem to be connected to any of these other names. Uh, he's. I'm not sure where Gerontius comes from. I don't recall uh, that. Maybe we'll uh, maybe we'll see that, and I'll be reminded as we go through. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I Tim, I, I love the whole of Took pun as well. All right. So let's uh, let's go back now to the rumors. Um, that uh, Frodo is hearing. So this is the beginning of the new chapter. You know, not the very beginning. But this is in the in, in the opening section of the new chapter two. Both elves and dwarves were troubled, especially those that occasionally arrived or passed by, coming from a distance, from east or south. They would seldom, however, say anything very definite. But they constantly mentioned the necromancer or the dark lord changed to enemy, and sometimes referred to the land of Mordor and the Black Tower. It seemed that the necromancer was moving again, and that Gandalf's confidence that the North would be freed from him for many an age had not been justified. He had flown from Mirkwood only to reoccupy his ancient stronghold in the south, near the midst of the world in those days, in the land of Mordor, and it was rumored that the Black Tower had been raised anew. Already his power was creeping out over the land again, and the mountains and woods were darkened. Okay, so now remember that uh, the this is this this is important in a couple ways, right? But the first thing I want to make sure that we recall we're talking about the gap of time here, right? This is this is Tolkien now introducing the gap of time and beginning to anticipate the story that's going to come, right? With the ring rates and the enemy and everything else, which was of course not on the ra- not on the on the radar screen at all before. Um, but but again, more importantly, you'll remember that Bingo it was his party originally, right? So Bingo throws the party, and then he leaves, right? And leaves all the insulting notes for people and and gives or sells. Bag end, uh, and takes off, 
right? Um, and that's and so you'll remember that Gandalf the the caravan, right? That um, that Gandalf is gallivanting across Eriador with, right? Uh, and not helping <laughs> Bingo and his companions with the Black Rider in Phase One. Um, it's the elves and dwarves from the party, right? That same dwarves who showed up and helped. And remember, elves came with them. Um, we cut the men, but the elves and dwarves were there. Um, they showed up for the party and they tore down the party. And so it's like with the party paraphernalia on the wagons with the dwarves that Gandalf is traveling. So it's all in the immediate aftermath of the party. Now, having shifted the party back to Bilbo, Tolkien introduces for the first time this very significant gap of time between when Bilbo throws his party and when Bingo is eventually going to be leaving the Shire, right? And he's... So this whole idea of the... The, the troubling of the elves and dwarves and the introduction of rumors into the Shire, rumors of the necromancer or the enemy and the land of Mordor and the Black Tower is designed to fill that space, right? Uh, and to show how over time this story is building and it's not just... Um, uh, it's not just... Uh, uh, coming out of nowhere, right? It's not just a strange black bundle on a horse that nobody understands anymore. But, of course, this is also very significant for another reason, and that is, as I was suggesting in my subtitle there, we do seem to have a relocation of the necromancer. One of the most striking things that I know it was really difficult for me to wrap my brain around in Phase 1 is the fact that the map of the, you know, the Lord of the Rings map seems to be the same map as the Hobbit map, right? It doesn't go any further south than the Hobbit map. And so Mordor, we talked about Mirkwood being a sort of a subset of Mordor, right? Um, and uh, the, 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 the stronghold of the enemy in the south is Baradur, is the tower, uh, not Baradur, sorry, no, is Dol Guldur, right? Is the, the what will later be called Dol Guldur, is the Tower of the Necromancer in Southern Mirkwood. They're the same thing. Um, this now, it seems pretty clear that that's not true anymore, right? It seemed that the Necromancer was moving again. Now, I don't, think, I don't think that means like, and the Necromancer is moving again, right? He's hired the movers and uh, and he's yeah, no, uh, that's not, uh, it doesn't mean the, the, the Necromancer was relocating literally um but uh, he had flown from Mirkwood only to reoccupy his ancient stronghold in the south. Okay, and that's, I think, the first time we've ever seen in the writing of the Lord of the Rings, the first time we've ever seen the, um, um, the distinct separation between Mirkwood and his ancient stronghold, right? So he has a stronghold that predates his stronghold in Mirkwood, and it is um, south, somewhere south of Mirkwood. So now we're, we're expanding the map, right? It's still unclear, right? Near the midst of the world in those days? What does that even mean, right? Midst of what, right? Where exactly is it? Is it just, is it pure, is it like due south of Mirkwood? No, we don't really know, right? Um, but, but the land of Mordor now also seems to be separate from Mirkwood. And that's interesting. That's important. We see it expanding, and we know, of course, it's going to expand. It's going to expand more. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Stephen, yeah, he, he already does have another name. He is still the Necromancer. Um, 
uh, he he already has the name Sauron. Sauron is already there, um, and that comes in especially in the Fall of Numenor. Um, he was originally called Thu the Necromancer, of course, in the older Silmarillion stuff. But now that the connection has been very clearly made uh, with the Necromancer, you know, we're not just we're not just recycling the Necromancer. It's the same guy, right? So the link to the Sauron of the Numenor stories is now very very clear and very explicit, right? So he already has all of all of his names. I think all of his names, all the names he's going to get, I think he has already. Um, and a couple that he's not going to keep, like Thu. But um, uh, anyway, so he has those names. So why why are we still calling him the Necromancer? It seemed that, that the Necromancer was moving again. They constantly mention the Necromancer. Link to the Hobbit, right? We can still see him making some very explicit links to the Hobbit. Um, that, is to say, that is to say, although this is ceasing to be the same kind of story that The Hobbit was, right? Um, the story is already deviating from the plan of another Hobbit adventure with a new Hobbit protagonist, right? We're not getting that exactly anymore. Yet, nevertheless, Tolkien still seems to be clearly committed to the idea that this is a, this is a Hobbit sequel, right? And he's giving plenty of hooks for Hobbit fans uh, to be able to connect, and I think that's that seems to be the function of calling him the necromancer all the time so that we know whom we're talking about. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> ben Better says that the whole mortar being in the midst of the world thing, he says uh, it's in the it's in the ninth circle of hell of Dante's hell, which is of course literally not like in the center of the earth, like in the center of the sphere of the earth. I don't think that's what he's thinking. Not, not midst in that, uh, uh, not midst in a three dimensional sense, I suspect. Uh, but that's kind of fun. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Diego, you're absolutely right. The publisher is still paying for a sequel to the Hobbit, right? I mean, they, they, that's, that's what they have promised to publish. So absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur's wondering why, uh, why I think he dropped the name Necromancer and changed it to, you know, the dark power that was driven out of the forest. I mean, you're right, Arthur, the, the, the Necromancer stuff is going to go away, right? I mean, he's called the Necromancer somewhere close to never in the published Lord of the Rings. I mean, it almost, it very, very rarely comes up anymore. Um, certainly not with anything like the persistence that we see in these earlier drafts. Um, and my suspicion there, I mean, I don't know for sure, but my suspicion there is simply that necromancer is a little bit misleading, right? He doesn't do all that much necromancy, right? So, I mean, like, why carry on calling him that when, um, you know, he doesn't seem to get any information from dead people, even briefly, right? So, uh, um... I think that, I, I mean, if I had to guess, I would say that, that you know, that he, he, you know, the word like the necromancer of Southern Mirkwood, as it's thrown out there in The Hobbit, right, is a sufficiently ominous name. I mean, that's kind of creepy, right? I mean, who is that necromancer guy? Like, what does he learn from dead people? And I don't even want to know, right? But when we actually meet him and he becomes the protagonist, um, and, 
you know, Tolkien seems to make the choice to say, you know, nah, necromancy isn't really a thing we're going to spend a whole lot of time with. So he dials down the actual calling of him, uh, uh, the necromancer. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yana points out that, of course, it's not that much of a hook uh, to The Hobbit, you know, in that he's not even mentioned that often in The Hobbit. True. No, I mean, of course, he's not he's not exactly like a major character uh, in The Hobbit, but he is mentioned, right? He is there. I mean, notice how, how the narrator is going out of his way, not only to just mention the necromancer who is referred to in The Hobbit, but to connect to the plot point, right? Uh, do, so makes... An, a near quotation, not exactly a quotation, but a near quotation to, to, to the penultimate chapter of The Hobbit. Gandalf's confidence that the North would be freed from him for many an age had not been justified, right? Um, Gandalf had said, after the fall of, uh, of Smaug, right, and after the Battle of Five Armies, he tells them, hey, oh yeah, and the necromancer's gone, and so the North should have peace for many an age. Um, interestingly, by the way, in the latest edition, in the third edition of The Hobbit, the 1966 revision of The Hobbit, um, Tolkien altered that line um, so that Gandalf's uh, statement was not as confident the first time. Um, so he, he instead of saying, for many an age, he says, like, for many years, right? Which is technically true. The North does have peace for several decades uh, before the Dark Lord rises again. So, um, anyway, so yeah, it's... so, so yeah, so Yana, my point is that he's he's clearly making a really strong, he's making an action, not just a reference to a minor character in The Hobbit, but a near quotation of a, of a real, um, uh, you know, of, of, of a passage from the end, right? Um, so again, I think that that's, um, uh, I, I, I think that that's, again, pretty clearly the hook that he's trying to, uh, trying to make, um. All right. Um, let's see. All right. Um, so I'm just trying to make sure I talked about everything I wanted to talk about here. Yeah, I think I did. Okay, so we have the rumors. We're connected to the Hobbit. Um, we have the idea of the world expanding, right? Again, not really clear about that, other than the midst of the world, which is still pretty vague. Uh, we don't really know yet what the new map portions look like, um, but it is interesting that Tolkien does seem to be going outside that, whereas you'll recall, even at the very end of Phase 2, when we leave Bingo in his conversation with Glowen, right, and, and, and that one projection which seemed to suggest that the entire quest was going to be Erebor focused and that the uh, um, you know the fiery mountain is 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 in that general direction right just you know out to the to the east there um, so this is a very new thing right that seems to be entering with the second phase this idea of the expansion of the map all right there were wars and there was much burning and ruin the dwarves were growing afraid goblins were multiplying again and reappearing Trolls of a new and most malevolent kind were abroad. Giants were spoken of, a big folk, only far bigger and stronger than men, the ordinary big folk, and no stupider, indeed often full of cunning and wizardry. 
and there were vague hints of things or creatures more terrible than goblins, trolls, or giants. Elves were vanishing or wandering steadily westward. Okay, yeah, these are bad signs, right? Um, Of course, the thing that primarily strikes me about this um, passage is the, something I'm sure jumps out at you too. The giants, right? Um, the stone giants throwing their boulders in the Misty Mountains in The Hobbit are famously one of the, one of the elements of The Hobbit. I mean, uh, stone giants are usually the first thing that I talk about uh, when I talk about sort of like stuff from The Hobbit that just kind of gets dropped in The Lord of the Rings. Um, not even retconned, just kind of ignored, Right. Um, in the published Lord of the Rings, you'd think he'd simply dropped the whole um, uh, the whole giant idea, right? There are no giants in Middle Earth. Um, interesting to see that not only was that not true here in the second phase, um, but it was the other way around, right? Um, of the things that he, the three evils that he emphasizes. Okay, well, the fourth being the unnamed more terrible creature, right? But of the three creatures that he names, uh, goblins, trolls, and giants, it's the giants that get emphasized more, right? And they're, they're described like an innovation, right? Um, uh, that a big folk, only far bigger and stronger than men, the ordinary big folk, right? If ordinary is the word. And by the way, um, do, I, I hope you took a couple minutes to really look at that facsimile of Tolkien's handwritten page, um, the one with the, the 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 ring verse on it, um, and if you did, I hope you emerged with a much greater appreciation of <laughs> Christopher Tolkien's difficulties and much more empathy for these moments when he just is not really at all sure what the word is and is just kind of guessing here. Ordinary, maybe I'm not really sure. Um, uh, I find Tolkien's handwriting is really, really difficult. Um, but anyway, uh, so, yeah, Arthur, it is really intriguing that he describes giants as bigger and stronger, but no stupider, right? Um, because that is a kind of assumption, right? Very few giants in traditional fairy tales are clever Giants, right? I mean, think about the giants in Narnia, right? Which, again, Lewis is is drawing on many of the same traditions that Tolkien is. Um, And uh, even the good giants are not clever, right? Uh, In Narnia. Um, So it seems that Tolkien is sort of working with that same kind of assumption, right? Giants tend to be stupid, but these these giants are not stupid, right? They're often full of cunning and wizardry. Wizardry, right? I wonder if they do any sickledry as well, but they do wizardry at least, and that's bad enough. Um, so this is, a, uh, this, is a, this is a serious threat. Trolls of a new and most malevolent kind were abroad, and then these giants, right? These cunning, wizardous, big, strong giants. Um, Arthur, I also read it as uh, as no stupider than men, and you're right, Arthur. That does sort of set set humans up as the standard of stupidity. Um, but again, I think the point is, you're, you you know you might assume when you hear about giants, you might you might be imagining giants who are very much dumber than people. These are not 
giants that are dumber than, not necessarily smarter than people, but they're not dumber than people. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Brandon, I agree. Giant wizards. That's that that that's trouble. I agree. Um, uh, that's uh, that's that definitely does seem to be uh, something to be worried about. I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Sarah has a comment about Tolkien's handwriting. Sarah liked Christopher Tolkien's comment uh, when he writes in the foreword to this chapter, The manuscript is rough, and in places very rough indeed, but legible virtually throughout. Uh, and she talks about how oh, that's damning with faint praise. Yeah, well, it's just a kind of relief, right? I mean, everywhere you can actually read it. It's kind of amazing. Um, but remember, that page that he gave us, right, the facsimile of there... That's what he's referring to that when he says it's it's legu- legible virtually throughout, and that's hard enough, right? Imagine that's that's a, so that's 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 high standards of legibility uh, for Tolkien's manuscripts, according to Christopher Tolkien. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and the elves, right? Several of you were also struck by the disappearing elves, right? Um, uh, you know, Stephen is wondering if the uh, if the elves are are vanishing. Both Stephen and Veronica were saying, "Are they? Uh, are they? Are they? Are they? Are they being made into orcs or something? Right? Are they? Uh, are, are are they taking? Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think so. Um, elves were vanishing or wandering steadily westward. I mean, who knows? Is that supposed to? I, I'm not sure how much to read into that. It could just mean they're being hunted and killed, right? It could mean they are quietly sailing, sailing, sailing away and leaving us, right? Um, uh, I don't know. So um, I think that uh, we don't have much to go on there. I kind of am not really suspicious of a of an orc manufacturing project here. Um, uh, they could be turning into small pixieous creatures. They could be fading away, right? Getting smaller, diminishing. Um, but again, I, you know, we don't really have any clear indication of that. I mean, could this be in a sense, a sign of the, you know, the, the, the fading of the age, right? The passing of the age of the firstborn. Is that what we're getting here? Is this, is the, you know, the concept going to be not just that the elves seek the harbors, but that they vanish. In fact, they just, just go away from middle earth, right? Um, either become invisible or, or, uh, uh, or diminish in size or fade away. Um, yeah. Good, yeah, Kate was saying, was was also thinking about Sam's comment about sailing away. Kate, yeah, the fact that that comment by Sam is here in this draft makes me think that that's what we're talking about. When the elves are vanishing, it means they're leaving Middle-earth, right? They're not just wandering around, they're not just seeking refuge in particular spots. Um, the wandering steadily westward um, means uh, even those that remain are moving to the west. Some of them vanish entirely. Some of them uh, are are scooching to the west, right? But they're still still in Middle Earth. But they're they're generally moving uh, moving westward. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay. Speaking of giants, right? We have um, the discussion of the walking tree, right? with Sam. Um, most interesting, this is Christopher speaking, is the reference to the tree men 
As my father first wrote Sam's words, he said, But what about these, what do you call them, giants? They do say, one, they do say as one nigh as big as a tower, or least a ways a tree, was seen up away beyond the North Moors not long back. This was changed at the time of writing to, But what about these tree men, these here giants? They do say one nigh as big as a tower was seen. Okay. This is kind of interesting, right? So, it's not just a walking tree that Sam is reporting having been seen, right? It's a giant that he's reporting having been seen, right? Um, these tree men, by tree men, I, I on, in the context, right, with what we've already seen about the giants and the way that this, you know, the shift from... Uh, what about these, what do you call them, giants, to, but what about these tree men, these here giants, right? Um, tree men, I take not to mean a tree that walks like a man, right? But rather, a man who is as big as a tree, right? Um, it seems to be a shirely uh, uh, expression, sort of synonym for giant. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and exactly, as several of you are pointing out, that that, that word, um, the Anglo-Saxon word uh, for giant, um, which is very much like the word which Tolkien is going to take and make into the ints. Um, so, like, are... Is this an ant? Well, yes and no, right? In a sense, yes, in that it is uh, it is a giant. He is using he he seems clearly to be thinking of the of that word. But this is not treebeard. This is nothing like treebeard. This is not a walking tree. It's just a giant. Um and this is another one of those moments, right, where Tolkien can take almost all of the dialogue, right, as it was originally done. And yet it will seem, in the future, it will seem to fit exactly. We all know what Sam means, right? I mean, the only debate that we have when we read this passage in chapter 2 now, in the published, in the context of the published work, is, is this an ento or a horn, right? I mean, really, that's the only question, right? Um, and to think that most of that conversation is describing neither, right? It was neither an ent nor a horn. It was a giant, right? A dude who is as big as a tree. Ben, that's exactly how I understand it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he is, Kate, exactly. He's writing his way into ends. He's getting, he's getting around to it. Um, but he's still a long ways away from it. Um, and we'll see before too long exactly how far he is away from as they will finally be uh, manifested uh, in the published two towers. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Brandon says, uh, you know, Brandon says this has to be how he gets around to ends eventually, right? Tolkien start, he uses this phrase, tree men, meaning men as big as trees, and thinks, dude, it would be way cooler if the tree men were actually trees that walked around. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, that maybe that's exactly what we get. But, um, Yana, I do think that this has to relate to the rock giants from the hob, the stone giants 
of the Hobbit in some way, the ones who who chuck the rocks. Um, we had giants, right? We're talking about giants. We had giants in the Hobbit. What's more, in um, this earlier passage, right? Goblins, trolls, giants, right? These three named enemies, we met them all in the Hobbit, right? We're still in the context of Hobbit hooks, right? This is the sequel. You remember the goblins? Yep, they're multiplying again. Remember the trolls? Well, there are trolls of a new and most malevolent kind abroad, right? So, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 William and and uh, uh, and you know and 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 Bert—they were bad enough, but you know, and Tom, but um, they uh, they they were bad enough, but now we have upgraded trolls, right? A new and most malevolent kind, and giants, right? Oh, but wait. There's, you know, the cunning and wizardous giants, right? Which we, I mean, not just apparently dumb rock-throwing giants. Um, it didn't seem, notice, we, we didn't get any sense of intelligence of the stone giants in The Hobbit. Um, at the very least, if they're not unintelligent, they're at least apathetic, and they don't seem to really care, right? They're just kind of chucking rocks around. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So we did get... um, uh, We did get these. So, yeah, I absolutely think, um, Yana, that uh, um, this is clearly meant to be a link uh, to the Stone Giants in that way. Oh, and I mentioned my subtitle. I love the the description of Sam as a jobbing gardener. Uh, That's... uh, it's kind of awesome, right? Talk about talk about humble. He's not even like a full time gardener, right? He's just a jobbing gardener. Uh, okay. But speaking of tree men, so uh, I, I I I did the legwork for you. Um, Christopher Tolkien alludes to these two passages where tree men are alluded to um, earlier in the context of the adventures of um, of Arendelle. So let me. Let me just briefly remind you, uh, this is from the Book of Oz Tales Part 2, so the jottings and concepts, he never wrote the Arendelle story, so, but the conception was that Arendelle had many voyages, and he was like the, the Silmarillion version of Odysseus, right, going, you know, on his great voyages and stopping at different islands and having crazy adventures and seeing wild things, the, 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 sort of the primary thing, not counting the whole trip to Valinor business, which was not even really originally connected with the Silmaril very much, but uh, he's just looking for his wife, um, in which in some versions he found her, in some versions he didn't, but anyway, as he's sailing around, the number one thing that he does is he encounters Ungoliant, and Ungoliant is enormous, and she's eating the sun and moon, which is inconvenient for everyone, um, and he kills her, right? So the, the Arendelle's, like, signature accomplishment in his adventurous phase is his encounter with Ungoliant where he uh, where he at least escapes her, in some versions kills her, right? So he's the slayer of Ungoliant. Anyway, okay. So uh, Christopher had said tree men are not new here. This is a, this is a concept that he's bringing in uh, from old Silmarillion material. Here they are, the two references. Veronwe and Arendelle set sail in Wingalot, driven south, dark regions, fire mountains, tree men, pygmies. 
Sarkindis, or Cannibal Ogres, Driven West, Unguiliante, Magic Isles, Twilight Isle, Little Heart's Gong awakens the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. Um, I love the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl. It's one of my favorite elements of the early Silmarillion material that I I kind of wish had stayed. Um, I find that phrase, the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl, uh, to be an almost ineffably mythic phrase. I don't, I don't understand it. Right. Um, but I don't need to understand it. Like that name is a, that name is a story in itself, right? The sleeper in the tower of Pearl. But anyway, um, so tree man, clearly giants again, right? Um, look at the, he, he's going to be going amidst all of these wonders and oddities, right? Dark regions, places where the sun never comes, I guess, right? Fire mountains, tree men and pygmies, right? So we've got the giants and we got the pygmies and then the cannibal ogres, right? And then he goes to Unguiliante and, and eventually to the sleeper in the Tower of Pearl as he heads out towards Valinor. Second reference. Arendel's boat goes through north. Iceland, added in margin, back of north wind. Greenland and the wild islands, a mighty wind and crest of great wave carry him to hotter climes to back of west wind. Land of strange men, land of magic, the home of night, the spider. He escapes from the meshes of night with a few comrades, sees a great mountain island and a golden city, added in margin, Kor, which is to say, uh, uh, the, on, you know, the city on uh, uh, Tol Eresia. Wind blows him southward, tree men, sun dwellers, spices, fire mountains, red sea, Mediterranean. Loses his boat, travels afoot through the wilds of Europe or Atlantic. Um, uh, this, this is the so again tree men, sun dwellers, spices, fire mountains. Right again, those those curiosities that he discovers or finds or encounters down in the south. Right. Um, okay. I don't want to get too distracted by wacky Arendel stuff. Of course, you'll notice in that second outline that Tolkien is still very much in the I'm telling the mythic prehistory of Northwestern Europe business, right? We get Iceland and Greenland and the Mediterranean Sea, uh, right? All these recognizable areas. This is the time still when Tol Eresia was England, the island of England itself. So, um, all that, all that stuff. Um, so, tree men. Treemen as giants, apparently um, one of the crazy wonders that he has. I agree, yeah, it is like um, uh, um, who was saying it's like, oh yeah, Carita, uh, exactly. It's like uh, like Gulliver as well as like Odysseus. Yes, the sort of the traveler to various islands where you find freaky weird things. Um, but uh, yeah, good. Um, okay, so you guys keep bringing up ends. What I'm trying to decide here is how forcibly I should try to convince you not to be thinking of ends. And I think my answer is pretty forcibly. Forget the ends. These aren't ants. They're not trees. They're as, they're tree men in the sense of being as tall as trees. Um, they are 
way, way there are leagues and leagues and leagues away from Treebeard and Quickbeam and the Ents, right? Um, in as much as Quickbeam and the Ents are, and you think about the way things, you know, the famous quotes from Tolkien's letters and stuff, right, about how much he loved plants and how he, he always, you know, wanted to be a voice for plants that which, you know, have so few defenders and things like that. And, you know, the way, of course, in which those uh, things that Tolkien says are very often connected with the creation of the Ents and all that. We're not there. We're nowhere near that. This is literally irrelevant. The giants, the tree men that we're getting in this version of this chapter have literally nothing to do with animated trees and the defenders of the plants, right? Um, These are just giants. This is merely fairy tale stuff that he's bringing in. That's why he mentions the intelligence of the giants, right? How they're no stupider than men because he's alluding to fairy tale giants. So forget Ents. Yes, it's true. The name of Ent comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Eotan, which means giant. Yes. As far as this is concerned, that's coincidence. Um, It's a pun. Nothing but a pun. It's a mere play on words to say that these Ents, giants, Eotan are are ents in the tree beardian sense, right? Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, I would just, I would just, um, um, I would, yeah, I would just, I, 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 but I think it's really important because, especially, of course, if we're thinking about the, you know, the walking tree that's eventually going to be, uh, and everything, it's, uh, um. Yeah, yeah. I, and yeah, Brian, I agree. I don't even think there's any reason to suspect that they have the form of trees, right? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Tony uh, and Stephen, it is, that word is the uh, the root of the name the Etten Moors as well. Absolutely, yes. It's the same, it's the same Anglo-Saxon word. Why are, why is that word ent? Why is the what? Why are Treebeard and the the tree folk? Why are they called Ents? Because they live near Rohan, right? And Ent come is the word for it's. They're the giants, right? Because they're the most giantish thing that the Rohirrim have ever seen, and so they call them Ents, right? Using that word, same word, that same Anglo-Saxon word, um, for um, for giant, right? But but again, that's just because. Uh, you know that 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 name is again. It's it's only just what they're called in Rohan. Anyway, but we're not there. So try not to uh, try to resist thinking about thinking about ends. Um, yes, Stephen says, isn't then Tolkien also making a play on word when he says that trolls are mockeries of ends? Yeah. Yeah, kind of is. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, it's again. It's it's the the fact is that that word, the aoton, is a generic word, right? I mean, it's it's uh, it's not even really clear exactly what that refers to in Anglo-Saxon. Like, is it is it a specific? Is it a vague word for like 
large, scary bad guys of various kinds, right? Is it like a, a general classification or is it like a species, right? So, you know, when you said, if you said, uh, if you said, hey, I just saw an Aotan, you know, to uh, to, to an Anglo-Saxon dude, would he have a really specific um, image in his head? Like, oh, I know just what you're talking about. Or is it, is it, is it a more vague term than that? It's not even really clear. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I know, I know, I know this is challenging and I don't, I don't want, I don't want to stop us thinking about ends permanently. Um, but I do think it's important, uh, that we not allow ourselves to be imagining the tree beard that we know and love lurking behind these giants. These giants are going to be simply discontinued, right? The giants we're talking about in this chapter, they don't have a, they don't have a future in this story. Um, and to say that they're going to become the ends, I don't even think that's necessarily right, um, but uh, but we'll see. We'll watch uh, as this uh, as this unfolds. Okay, um, all right. So here's uh, Gandalf's explanation of his assessment of the ring. Right. Okay. So now we have. The story being told, Tolkien wrestling with the question that, of course, lots of people are going to wrestle with. How much does Gandalf understand, and at what point does he figure it out? Right. Um, so here's Gandalf's first real attempt, because, of course, there was nothing to figure out the first time through, right? Here's Gandalf's first real attempt to sort this out. I guessed much, but at first I said little. I thought that all was well with Bilbo and that he was safe enough, for that kind of power was powerless over him. So I thought, and I was right in a way, but not quite right. I kept an eye on him, of course, but perhaps I was not careful enough. I did not then know which of the many rings this one was. Had I known, I might have done differently. But perhaps not. But I know now. His voice faded to a whisper, for I went back to the land of the necromancer twice. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes, Stephen, that's a great word for it. Stephen says, Gandalf sounds even more dodgy than he does in the published text. Yes. No, I was going to go with wishy-washy, but you notice how Gandalf waffles here? And he's like, I thought it was okay, but I wasn't really sure. And it turns out, I think I was kind of wrong, but not exactly. Right? Gandalf is pretty darn non-committal uh, in this. And I, again, I think it's it seems... It's, yes, exactly, Brandon. Gandalf is already in the business of giving vague advice and, uh, and vague descriptions of things. Um... One thing, of course, that we can't get away from. The, the concept of the ruling ring, right, the fact that this ring is not just, you know, Sauron's personal favorite of all of his rings. Uh, it's, uh, it's certainly not just a random one of the, uh, the, the rings that was tossed aside and, and discovered. This is the ruling ring, right? This is a ring which is conceptually different from all of the others and, and, uh, and, and obviously really important. That concept we saw Tolkien iron that out in the Queries and Alterations chapter. Um, and so we have that from the beginning, but notice from Gandalf's perspective, clearly his thought is still, the rings are still really undifferentiated, right? The kinds of questions 
that we ask of Gandalf in the published version, right? So Gandalf, how is it that you couldn't figure out that this was the One Ring? Doesn't that seem obvious, right? Um, and of course, I addressed this in in uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings a few weeks back. But uh, the reason we ask that is we go through the we go through the song, right? Three rings for the Elven rings. We know it's not one of those. Seven for the Dwarf Lords. Nine for the Mortal Men. Right? All of these are accounted for, and they're different in these various ways. So obviously, it's got to be the one, right? Um, Gandalf. At this point, we as we see the numbers of rings are vague. Yes, this one ring is different, but all the rings are much more I don't know, amorphous, generic, right? Um, so it's much more natural from the point of view that Gandalf has here in phase two of the story. Um, much more natural for Gandalf to say, I could see it was a ring of power, but I was assuming it was one of the generic kind. Right, you know, one of their whole bunch of those floating around. How many of the elves have like twelve or something? Right, so yeah, I mean, there are a bunch of those rings around. It's a big deal, right? Those are important, but you know, at the end of the day, just one of those rings of power, right? How was I to know that it was the one ring? I mean, that's kind of unlikely, right? That it would be the one ring. This seems to be Gandalf's thinking here. Look at the kind of. Let's see if we can figure out though the cryptic things that he says about Bilbo and his relationship. Okay, so. He thinks that Bilbo is safe enough, for that kind of power was powerless over him. That is, the kind of power that the rings of power had is powerless over Bilbo. Okay. Um, he, 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 so he's not worried about Bilbo because Bilbo is immune. He believes Bilbo to be immune or functionally immune to the kind of corruption that rings of power tend to bring. I'm not sure why exactly. Is this because the rings were not calibrated for hobbits? Right? Um, uh, is it you know, that, you know, that is to say that, uh, right, you know, Arthur says, you know, the kings of men, the dwarves and elves are corruptible, but Bilbo is not. Well, maybe that's the reason why, right? You know, I mean, like, the, they're, they're, um, you know, it's it's like a it's like an insecticide that says you know it lists the insects that it works against, right, and makes no promises about the rest of them. Maybe the rings of power are like that, right? Uh, you know, this this ring of power is certified to be good against kings of men, elves, and dwarves, but oh yeah, no, it's useless against hobbits, right? Is that what's going on? I kind of, I mean, that's honestly one of my primary guesses here um, when he says that kind of power was powerless over him. I also suspect that he sort of means... Um, good, yeah, Diego. Uh, Diego says, uh, kind of like he was sort of semi-immune to the dragon sickness, right? He's the only one around who is not uh, not falling under the, 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 the... That's why he's the only one trying to make peace and bring everybody to their senses at the end of The Hobbit, right? Um, so... Uh, um, yeah, I, I, that that also seems to me an extremely plausible uh, way of understanding that, that the kind of power that the rings of power have over people, the kind of power that they offer, this is not something that Bilbo is safe enough because he's unlikely to be really tempted by that kind of thing, right? Um, had I known, I might have done differently, but perhaps not. But I know now. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, and Joyce, you're right. Joyce points out that we don't see him as being a power in the Shire, right? Even even in his local context, um, Bilbo's never asserting power or seeking to dominate the will of anybody, right? Um, so yeah, James Stevens saying a similar thing. Uh, it's people who seek out power of one kind or another, whether it's you know, whether it's the kind of the power that the kings of men have, whether it's the power, um, like the accumulation of wealth, right, that the dwarves have, um, or seek. Anyway, that's, um, uh, uh, it, it does seem that perhaps he's suggesting that Bilbo is at least mostly immune to that kind of, uh, that kind of that kind of power. And good, Veronica points out that since Gollum is a hobbit and that concept is literally the starting point of this chapter, right? That kind of sort of the the proto-Gollum conversation that Gandalf and Bingo have in that one sort of sketchy, isolated um, uh, thing that he wrote right when the Ringwraiths popped into the story, right? Um, So the concept of Bilbo being, or Gollum, excuse me, being a corrupted hobbit is you know, one of the first concepts associated with ring wraiths and the corruption of the ring. Um, so Veronica, anyway, points out that since Gollum was a hobbit, hobbits are not necessarily immune. It's Bilbo himself who is resistant. So yes, it's not just that it doesn't, uh, it's, it's, it's totally unattuned to hobbits, but rather that Bilbo himself is a pretty safe bet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, good. Um, keep going. More on those ring distributions. This is the first draft of the song, right, of the the, the, the ring verse. Um, now, you'll notice in the version that Christopher Tolkien includes in the main text, this is from the note, this is from note, note 14 of the chapter, um, the uh, the um, the Revised version. I mean, he he he. Usually, when he writes the poems, there's uh, you know, Christopher will refer to the workings of the poem, meaning sort of the 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 process by which Tolkien hammers them out. He doesn't just come out with the verses. Um, the final version that he arrived at here in this phase is very close to the final published version. Um, but I love it when Christopher gives us the first version of the poem so we can see where he was going and what he was doing at the very beginning. Here's the first version. Nine for the elven kings under moon and star, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, three for mortal men that wander far, one for the dark lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows are. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor, where the shadows are. First of all, I love the fact that the rhythmic shift is there from the very beginning, right? Um, Nine for the elven kings under moon and star, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone. You hear how trochaic that is? Uh in their halls of stone, right? Same, same, same thing. Um, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows are. Um, it's a, a very trochaic rhythm all the way through. And then that shift to the sinister I ams of one ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor, 
where the shadows are. Um, same. So the, see, the rhyme scheme is the same. The rhythm is the same. So the, these are elements that go back to the to the origins. Like clearly, this is how Tolkien hears it from the very very beginning. Um, the numbers, of course, are interesting. It's interesting how it's inverted, right? Um, nine for the Elven Kings, but of course, there's a really important element there, right? That we haven't even talked about, right? All of the Rings of Power are made by Sauron originally. There is no Celebrimbor making his own rings, right? The Elven Rings are not pure. They're not. They're evil. They're all evil. Right, um, and this goes back to the beginning with the elf wraiths, right? You know, back when we were doing ring wraiths, we had the there were rings that were designed to ensnare the um, to ensnare the the elves, right? And presumably did so, okay? But um, but yeah, so so all of these rings are made by Sauron, um, and honestly, doesn't this make perfect? Especially in that context, doesn't this make perfect sense? Whom would he primarily want to ensnare? Elves, right? So, I mean, you could say, like, all right, you've got elves and you've got men, right? You can ensnare nine of one and three of the other. Which one do you choose, right? Obviously, Sauron's going to be like, I want to ensnare the nine elves, right? Clearly. Um, let's, um, let's, let's fill up with that. Um, that uh, makes all kinds of sense, right? Uh, and keep in mind, see, Brandon, keep in mind, it's not true that there would only be three ring wraiths in this context, right? Because the elves are wraiths, too. We know the elves become wraiths. So, so yeah, we don't... But who knows? Maybe the Black Riders, some, some of the Black Riders are, are elf wraiths, right? What could be more likely? Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that this is... Um, uh, this makes perfect sense, and it seems to me very natural that this would flow from the concept of the Dark Lord having all of the rings be a snare and uh, uh, making, with varying degrees of success, the wraithification um, of, uh, of the various races. What's interesting to me, honestly, is the fact that he shifts it around, right? Um, the idea that the nine rings go to the elves first doesn't surprise me. The fact that he changes it to three uh, right away Right in the initial stages of the revision of the verse, that's what surprises me, honestly. Um, and I don't know exactly. Is this? Um, does he do that because? Does he do it because there are um, just the number three is a more is like a stronger number? I don't know. I have no idea why he shifts it. Um, why he switches the three and the nine, um, which he does seem to be to do right away. Um, remember the way the, the 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 major change. John is suggesting maybe three rings for the three Silmarils, right? So maybe we we've got the the Silmaril connection lurking in the background. It's a good thought. It's a good thought. Um, of course, the one major change, not to the rhyme scheme, but to the actual rhymes, right, comes in that first, the A rhyme in these lines. Um, nine for the elven kings under moon and star. 
three for the mortal men for mortal men that wander far in the land of Mordor where the shadows are of course obviously you will remember in the final version of the poem in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie which rhymes with nine for elven kings under the sky uh, though we're going to get we're going to we need another syllable right nine rings for the or three rings for the elven kings under the sky is going to be the final version right um, nine for mortal men doomed to die, of course. So we get, um, uh, we get, um, what do we see? Under moon and star is the first impulse. And I, notice how much more sort of Silmarillion-ish that, uh, that sounds, right? Under moon and star. Um, the elven kings, which were the kings under the moon before the rising of the sun, right? And under the stars before the rising of the moon. And they're the Eldar, they're the people of the stars, right? And, uh, you know, so uh, there's, there's like this wealth of Silmarillion association with under moon and star that we don't, um, uh, that we don't get in the final version, under the sky, Right? Um, which is frankly under the sky is just much less um, much less evocative really than under moon and star I, quite, I, I, I have to say I quite like under moon and star better um, though I do like doomed to die so I, I guess I would trade it I guess I would trade under moon and star for doomed to die um, because that wander far doesn't seem to mean itself nearly as evocative but um yeah yeah um good good um yeah Joyce is thinking three rings for the three houses of the elves yes I mean there certainly are plenty of three you know of tripartite divisions among the elves but the problem is there's so many of them that there aren't really three right I mean we got the Vanyar the Noldor and the and the Sindar, but he's certainly not given any of the rings to the Vanyar, right? So that doesn't really apply. Um, you know, we've got like the three families, the three houses within the uh, the Noldor, right? So you could be like, well, maybe, you know, like the one ring for the House of Feanor, one ring for the House of Fingolfin, one, but that doesn't really seem to work either. It doesn't really map out real well. So, um, you know, I don't, uh, uh, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, now, remind me. Uh, yeah, the dwarves are stable with at seven there. Does anybody remember, or or have more of an opportunity here than I do? I, d- I didn't think to look this up before. In the Lost Road, um, if you go to the Lost Road and look in the 1937 Silmarillion, um, remember we got the story of Aule and the the making of the dwarf fathers there in the Lost Road. Um, are there seven? I can't remember. Are there seven fathers of the dwarves there? Because if there are, then obviously it makes all kinds of sense that he would be keeping seven rings for the seven dwarf lords, meaning to ensnare one per clan. That that makes all kinds of sense. Um, but um, but yeah, Arthur C. I agree. You can have as many tripartite divisions among uh, humans and hobbits, or at the three houses of the Adain and all that. Yeah, exactly. So I I um. There are too many threes for it to be that that specific 
that's specifically relevant, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. This, said Gandalf, is the master ring, the one ring to rule them all. This is the one ring that he lost many ages ago to the great weakening of his power, and that he still so greatly desires, but he must not get it. Bingo sat silent and motionless. Fear seemed to stretch out a vast hand like a dark cloud, rising out of the east and looming up to engulf him. Um, this, of course, is a really big moment. You know, I talked about the story shifting to the imperative. This was the one element that we still didn't really get, right? In phase one, by the time we got to the end of phase one, the significance of the ring was clear, right? We started with the rings of power. They corrupt you and turn you into wraiths. The wraiths who are his slaves are coming because he wants this ring back um, and possibly to take revenge against you for, for holding it, right? Um, and we got to this is the ring that he really wants. This is his master ring, the ruling ring. Um, we got the references to the fiery mountain, right? But what we never really got clearly was if this ring is destroyed, it will bring about the great weakening of his power. This is the key to, to you know, the, the, the idea of the dreadful chance, as Gandalf will call it in the published Fellowship of the Ring, right? The dreadful chance that is given to them. Um, the ring, not just as a burden, not just as being the mover of the story in the sense of this is what me leads the bad guys to chase after Bingo, and so that's what starts the story going and where the primary action of the story comes from. Um, not just that, but this is the goal. This is the this is the quest, right? Um, this is our opportunity to destroy uh, the Dark Lord and bring an end to his reign. Now, in our new chapter two, right? That all comes, and again, so you see how fruitful is this going back and reworking the story now with all of this stuff in mind. And when he does, boom, it emerges. Now, now we have a goal. Now we have a destination beyond Rivendell, right? Now it's clear what the fiery mountain can have to do with things, right? Um, he greatly desires this ring that we had before, but he must not get it. That's what's new, right? Um, so good. I think this is so. This is obviously this is a this is a huge deal. And again, notice we're almost at the final text, right? Uh, this the closeness of this chapter two to the final chapter two, I find, is extremely remarkable, right? He's really he's worked out almost everything here. I love that image, you know, that we get here fear stretching out a vast hand like a dark cloud, rising out of the east and looming up to engulf him. Still the east, right? Uh, it's south in the midst of the world, I guess, but it's still primarily out of the east uh, that it comes. Um, yes, that idea of the shadow reaching forward. We haven't had quite as much of that, right, in the early versions. Okay. Explain things to us more, Gandalf, though. We need to understand better about how these rings work. In ancient days, the necromancer, the Dark Lord Sauron, made many magic rings of various properties that gave various powers to their possessors. He dealt them out lavishly, 
and sowed them abroad to ensnare all peoples, but specially elves and men. For those that used the rings, according to their strength and will and hearts, fell quicker or slower under the power of the rings and the dominion of their maker. Three, seven, nine, and one he made of special potency, for their possessors became not only invisible to all in this world, if they wished, but could see both the world under the sun and the other side, in which invisible things move. And they had what is called good luck, and what seemed endless life. Though, as I say, what power the rings conferred on each possessor depended on what use they made of them, on what they were themselves, and what they desired. Okay, lots of really important concepts here, right? Um, first, the idea of the greater and lesser rings, right? That this is now being explicitly stated for the first time, three, seven, nine, and one. It's like now that he's written the poem, that's where the distinction comes in, right? Uh, now we have the clear sense of, all right, we've got these, uh, uh, we've got these special rings, and these are of special potency, right? Um, and there are these other lesser rings, which are still dangerous and can still corrupt you. They were still made by Sauron and distributed for insidious reasons, right? But nevertheless, uh, uh, there are these there are these great rings. Um, notice how carefully it is modeled after Bilbo's experience, right? How derivative the rings are of the Hobbit, even though the ring in the Hobbit is not at all sinister and not at all a ring of power, right? Here is, is Tolkien once again sticking with what he wrote, right, and working with it, right, making it work, rather than saying, like, okay, let me approach this whole ring of power idea from scratch, right? What kinds of powers should the rings give, right? No, he's like, well, I've already given them some powers, right? But And he, he so he points to things which have been explicitly connected with the ring already, right? Invisibility. No-brainer, right? Prolongation of life. Seemingly endless life, right? We've already had the thin and stretched business, so we've got that as well. And what is called good luck. That Bilbo's good luck as well was a power of the ring. That's going to go away, um, and frankly, I'm glad it does. I hate that, actually. I'm a strong non... I am a, I'm an unfriend of that concept, mostly because I love the way that the concept of luck comes out and the way in which Tolkien expands it um, as he goes through and revises The Hobbit and connecting it back in the final scene with... Um, uh, with uh, the you know the conversation with Balin and, and Gandalf and Bilbo and, and the uh, the the way that luck is at work in the story as a whole uh, exactly Sarah luck is a matter for providence not the dark side I absolutely agree the idea that uh, that it was the evil ring of power of Sauron who was actually giving Bilbo his luck the whole time I find an abhorrent idea and I am super glad that Tolkien dropped that concept but again you notice the pattern notice what he's doing right well. What uh, special abilities did Bilbo have or seem to have? Let's and let's say those are the powers of the ring, right? Um, and and that's again, it's uh, it's 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 fascinating um, that that's where he goes. Rather than starting from scratch, he goes back to what he has and says, "Let's work it, right? Let's retcon it. Let's let's make it all work together." Um, the invisibility thing, 
right? He's very explicit here. Remember, again, this is right after he just worked this out at the flight to the Ford. Um, that business in the conversation with Bingo and Gandalf and Rivendell about the other side and and the... the I mean, that's still, in the published Lord of the Rings, the only moment, um, that conversation between Gandalf and and, uh, and Frodo uh, in, in uh, you know, uh, the the recovery room there in Rivendell um, is still the only time that we get any of that kind of theorizing about the other side and the, uh, the, the, the our world and the wraith world and stuff. Um, we don't get much of that uh, through the rest of the Lord of the Rings. He's still kind of fresh from having thought about that a good deal, right? Um, in, uh, at, you know, near the end of phase one. Um, so they can see so that the key is, they're invisible, and if they wish, they can be invisible to the creatures in this world, right? To normal sort of physical beings. Um, but it doesn't just control how they can or cannot be seen. It also controls what they see, right? So putting on the ring discloses to them both the world under the sun, which they can always see, and the other side in which invisible things move. So the fact that Bingo can see the ring wraiths when he is wearing the ring on Weathertop. This becomes a, a, a general perk, right? Um, invisible things. And those seem to be evil things, like wraiths. It's like the things that are on the other side are not happy things. We already had that reference to the elves, some of the elves anyway, living on both sides at once, right? Um, but the creatures who live in the, you know, the invisible things that move on the other side, those are, those seem to be wraiths. Those seem to be creatures of Sauron. Um, okay, so we get all that stuff. But, again, as is always going to be the case, the rings are still relative to their possessors, right? They confer power on each possessor, depending upon what use they make of them, on what they were themselves, and what they desired. Now, what they were themselves might mean simply, are you an elf? Are you a dwarf? Are you whatever? Um, but it also, I would think, it's more likely to be talking about the sort of the, the, the nature, the desires, the makeup of the person uh, who's who's using it, right? Um, okay. All right. Okay. Thank you, James. James says he doesn't see a reference to the seven fathers of the dwarfs in the Lost Road. Um, it just says that Owley made the fathers of the dwarfs. It doesn't give him a number. Okay. Yeah, I couldn't remember if it did or not. Thanks, James. Uh, James Oakley uh, points that out. Um, and yes, the plural form is dwarfs. Yeah, he's still using that. Talked about that a little bit last time, or last uh, last class, last course, I guess I should say. Um, yeah. Um, Good, yeah, and Arthur, being able to see both worlds is not a property of being from Valinor, but an evil power. There is a Valinorian thing. Again, we did get that with Gorfindel um, in the flight to the Ford. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that whole other world seems to be mostly an evil thing, actually. Like, that, it really is a wraith world. It's a world where the invisible evil things lurk. And the elves from Valinor have a kind of access to it. Like, they can see it, and they, uh, they sort of exist there, and they're terrifying there to the evil creatures. But, uh, uh, but yeah. Okay. 
But the rings were under the command of the maker and were always drawing the, the possessors back to him, for he retained the ruling ring, which, when he wore it, enabled him to see all the others and to see even the thoughts of those that possessed them. Okay, so this idea of the ruling ring, this now we're working out exactly how, how did that work in practice, right? How does, um, how does he, Gandalf, um, or not Gandalf, Gandalf is explaining, right? How does Sauron actually utilize the ruling ring, right? Um, and you can see how it's part of this whole network of like, I'm going to distribute the rings and I'm going to draw them all back, right? And I can, you know, he's got like a, a multi-picture view, right? He can see into, he can see into all of them and, and, uh, and, and, and bring them back in. But he lost this ring and consequently lost control of all the others. Slowly, through the years, he has been gathering them and seeking them out, hoping to find the lost one. But the elves resist his power more than all other races, and the high elves of the West, of whom some still remain in the middle world, perceive and dwell at once both in this world and the other side without the aid of rings. See, there you go. And they, having suffered and fought long against Sauron, are not easily drawn into his net or deluded by him. What has become of the three rings of earth, air, and sky, I do not know. Some say that they have been carried far over the sea. Others say that hidden elf kings still keep them. Um, the strength of the elves to resist him is greater uh, than of all the other races. That is to say... This is not... Remember that phrase, Tolkien keeps that phrase in the published Fellowship of the Ring, but he it's a lead-in to Gilgalad and the taking of... But the power of the elves to resist him was greater in those days, Gandalf will eventually say to Frodo, right? I'm talking about the last... Setting up the story of the Last Alliance and the taking of the Ring of Power by Gilgalad, but that's not what he's talking about here. Here he's just talking about the resistance of the Ring. So there are rings of power that the elves have, and... Um, again, we're 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 down to three, right? Um, others say the hidden elf hidden elf kings still keep them and are not wraithified, right? So, because the power of the elves, especially the high elves of the west, is great to resist the power of the rings. Would it be lesser if uh, he had the one ring? If Sauron had the one ring, presumably, yes, yes, it would. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so you see in the original concept, Sauron getting the One Ring back means something different and somewhat more, even more ominous, right, than it does in the published Lord of the Rings. Um, they are able to resist the rings, to use them, to possess them without becoming wraiths, because they are very strong, and because Sauron doesn't have the ruling ring anymore, right? Yes, Earth, Air, and Sky. I agree, Matthew. Air and Sky. Stephen is asking the same thing. That does seem a little redundant to me. Um, I wonder if that's a slip. We do. Christopher does point out other places where he says Earth, Water, and Sky, or Earth, Water, and Air. Um, and I, I, so I kind of assume that's what he meant here, air and sky. I'm not sure what the distinction between air and sky is. It's conceivable. I mean, there is, you know, if you think back to the Embarcanta in the shaping of Middle Earth, there's the, you know, like there's the, 
the higher atmosphere and the lower atmosphere, and they're called different things and stuff. So it's conceivable that the the rings relate to the, but I don't think so. I think it's Earth, water, and air, or Earth, water, and sky. Um, besides which, that makes perfect sense, right? I mean, think about the Valar, right? Uh, you know, Earth, water, and sky. You've got Aule, Olmo, and Manwe, right? Um, so it, they would correlate with the three, you know, chiefest of the Valar. Makes all kinds of sense. No, no ring of fire, right? Several of you are are, are uh, perturbed about uh, uh, about the the lack of a ring of fire. Yeah, it's interesting, right? No ring of fire. So not only does Gandalf not have one, Gandalf's ring isn't even isn't even there. Right, and notice which one's going to go away. It's the ring of Earth that's going to get replaced. Right in the end, it's going to be the rings of fire, air, and water. Air is Elrond's ring, Vilia. Uh, uh, the water ring uh, it, uh, is uh, um, Nenya, of course, Galadriel's ring, and Narya, the ring of fire, is the one that's going to be Gandalf's ring. That's the ultimate destiny of the three rings. Um, and, you know, why the omission of Earth, right? Why the change from Earth to fire? Well, you know, we'll see. And yeah, Tony, I agree, leaving out fire makes sense if you associate fire with evil, right? Presumably, the impression I get here still is that um, Sauron is... Um, Sauron is is deceiving them, right? The elves, into thinking these are good things. Um yeah. No, see, Arthur, I, I agree. I think there is a, Sil- a Silmaril connection, but the Silmarils find their homes in the earth, the sea, and the sky. Um, yes, Mytheros casts himself with the Silmaril into the fires of the earth, um, but when the, the final resting places of the, Silmaril, of the Silmarils are listed, it is in earth, sea, and sky. Um, so yeah, uh, that Silmaril connection I think is non-coincidental. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, let's keep going. But he forsook his bodily shape and fled like a ghost to waste places until he rested in Mirkwood and took shape again in the in the darkness. This is after he is overthrown. Gilgalad and Orendil were both mortally hurt and perished in the land of Mordor, but Isildur, son of Orendil, cut the one ring from the finger of Sauron and took it for his own. But when he marched back from Mordor, Isildur's host was overwhelmed by goblins that swarmed down out of the mountains, and it is told that Isildur put on the ring and vanished from their sight, but they trailed him by slot and scent until he came to the banks of a wide river. Then Isildur plunged in and swam across, but the ring betrayed him and slipped from his hand, and he became visible to his enemies, and they killed him with their arrows. But a fish took the ring and was filled with a madness and swam upstream, leaping over rocks and up waterfalls until it cast itself upon a bank and spat out the ring and died. I love the fish. I so wish we hadn't lost the fish. Um, I guess the only memory of the fish is the great fish that takes... Uh, 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 Daigle's hook, right? And draws him down under the water. Um, the fish becomes a guide to the ring rather than a bearer of the ring. Uh, but I just love the idea of like the 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 
<laughs> the fish. It's like it's like Karkaroth, but a little bit less intimidating, right? Karkaroth with fins. This enraged, maddened fish. Um, uh, and Veronica says even the fish is affected by the ring, right? It it it, uh, uh, it, it gets all ambitious, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, I do know what it means to be trailed by slot. By slot, just, it means they're tracking him, right? They're sniffing his trail, like his scent, and the slot is just like the path in the grass that he leaves behind. So uh, track, trailing him by slot and by scent means, so like a normal tracker would track some, would track an animal by, by slot, by the path, the physical path that it's made and how it's bent uh, the vegetation as it's gone. Um, but they're also hunting him by scent, like a dog would, uh, uh, like a hound uh, would... Uh, uh, would hunt. Okay. Um, and yes, Kate, I agree. Kate Neville points out that this is a, that's a very fairy tale element. Um, fish are always swallowing things in fairy tales. Um, yes, I agree. I agree. Um, <laughs> lots of sympathy for the poor fish. Here I'm all amused. I'm all callously amused about the fish, and you guys are, are all, uh, um, uh, uh, envisioning the fish, uh, you know, in this sympathetic fashion. Um, you're right, Brandon. The fish. This fish is clearly not the salmon of wisdom, but maybe it had a ring-induced monologue in which it would imagine it could become the salmon of wisdom, and that's where it was headed. Nothing seems more likely. Um, but again, notice that the, the, the point I would want to make here is the really simple one, right? Notice the corruption of the ring, the betrayal, the treachery of the ring, right? The way that the ring betrays anyone who carries it to death right away, right? First Isildur, then the fish, right? It's uh, And then Gollum, right? And then to Bilbo and to Bingo. So... Um, the ring is far more dangerous. It's getting much more dangerous. The idea of the ring taking action of its own independently, right, that's now becoming more and more clear. Um, notice how the ring is being described as doing things, right? It betrayed him. It slipped from his hand, and he became visible, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Nancy thinks that the fish died a hero. It did manage to spit the ring out. So, Nancy, look, in the original version, right, I couldn't say that Bilbo is the only ring bearer ever to give up the ring, right? It would be Bilbo and the fish. So there you go. Um, I guess maybe that's a fitting epitaph for the poor heroic fish. Um, Arthur asks, did the ring betray Sauron? With a wonderful question. I don't think so. I don't see any reason... I don't see any reason to believe that it did, uh, you know, to interpret that. I mean, it, did it lead him to his own death? I mean, no more than evil generally does in that it... But, yeah, I mean... It, <laughs> Oliver says, the fish conquered. Few have gained such a victory. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it does seem... Yeah, yeah, Diego, I agree. It seems like he's just vanquished in battle. So, yeah, I don't think... Um, I don't see how we could say that it betrayed him, certainly not in the same way that it betrays the Sildor, or the fish. Right. Um, 
because it, yeah, I mean, so Kate is suggesting maybe it, maybe the ring amplified Sauron's hubris, possibly, but it, honestly, it seems like a subset of his, of his hubris, right? I mean, he makes it in order to, you know, he, he has the, the arrogant idea before he makes the ring, right? It's what leads him to make the ring in the first place. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, the sequence, yeah, a couple of you are pointing to that, um, how he forsakes his bodily shape and flees like a ghost. Um, and it sounds like, and then Isildur cut the one ring. I'm not sure if that's right or not. That is to say, okay, but he forsook his bodily shape and fled like a ghost to waste places until he rested in Mirkwood and took shape again in the darkness. Um, that sentence is a big picture sentence, right? Here's what happened with the last alliance. He was defeated, he goes to Mirkwood, he eventually takes shape again in Mirkwood. Um, then we return to the battle. Gilgalad and Arenda were both mortally hurt, but Isildur cut the one ring from the finger of Sauron. I don't think that those two sentences are sequential. Notice how that first sentence ends with him taking shape again in the darkness. So this is not like a, a, a mere chronological sequence. First, he forsakes his bodily shape. Then he flees like a ghost. Then he rests in Mirkwood. Then he takes shape again. Then Isildur cuts the ring from his hand. That's obviously not the chronological sequence, right? Isildur doesn't wait until his he's beginning to take shape again in the darkness in Mirkwood before he cuts the ring off his hand. Um, so I don't think that that paragraph works chronologically that way. First sentence says... We're talking big picture terms about the Battle of the Last Alliance, right? The first sentence gives us an overview of what happens to Sauron. The second sentence gives us an overview of what the protagonists on the, of the good guys do, right? Gilgalad and Arendel die. Isildur is the one who cuts the ring from the finger of Sauron. It's not being told like a dramatic narrative there, which is working in chronological sequence. That, anyway, is my, uh, is my reading of that. Um... No, I don't think, Tony, that it's just... It, this means that Isildur takes the ring just... To, he, that he's just looting the corpse. I don't think so. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think he's looting the corpse. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but you're right, Diego, to point out that um, every version of the story in the books both this version and the published version is very different from the way that the cutting of the ring from Sauron's hand is treated in the movie, for instance. Diego, I don't know if you were thinking explicitly of the movie, but you'll remember the way that Jackson does it, which is very dramatic, right? Um, Sauron is going to win. He can't, no one can stand against him. There is nobody who's going to rise up, wrestle with Sauron while Sauron is wearing the ring, and throw him down, right? And then cut the ring off his like, off his hand from, like, that's attached to his unconscious and and subdued body, right? That's not what happens um, in the films. In the films, he's this, like, unstoppable, until Isildur cuts the ring and then he implodes, right? Um, It is very clear. First he is overthrown, then the ring is taken from him. Um, I do think he doesn't flee like a ghost until the ring is taken from him, uh, but his defeat comes before the ring is taken away. That is an important element of the story all the way through. We see that here, and we see that uh, and we see that later on. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
Oh, yeah, Diego, no, I wasn't necessarily thinking that you were thinking of the movie. I was just using that as a point of contrast. That is, because the movie does depict very clearly the cutting of the ring from the hand is the prerequisite to his being defeated. It's the only way he can possibly be defeated, right? And I, and I just wanted to use that as, as a way to emphasize clearly it's not the case, I think, here. Um, all right. You remember how surprised he was and how soon he began talking of a present, though he himself, though he gave himself, this is Gollum, of course, Gandalf is talking about. You remember how surprised he was and how soon he began talking of a present, though he gave himself a chance of keeping it if luck went that way. Even so, I dare say his old habits might have beaten him in the end, and he might have tried to eat Bilbo if it had been easy. But I am not sure. I guess he was using the riddle game, at which even a golem dare hardly cheat, as it is sacred and of immense antiquity, as a kind of toss-up to decide for him. And anyway, Bilbo had the sword sting, if you remember, so it was not easy, that is, not easy to eat him, of course. Um, this is kind of cool, right? Gandalf goes further here than he does even in the published version to recuperate Gollum's point of view. Um, notice how Gandalf is doing a close reading, a close reading of the first edition Hobbit text, right? Notice how quickly Gandalf says, um, you remember how quickly he began talking of a present. It's like the first thing he did. He's like, hey, I'll give you a present, right? It's as if he wants to give away the ring, right? Notice Tolkien's first effort at retcon. We know where he's going to go eventually, right? To the rewriting of chapter five, saying it's just the idea of Gollum giving away the ring as a present voluntarily not going to really happen, right? doesn't really fit with the domination of Gollum by the ring. But that's not his first impulse, right? His first impulse, of course, is to retcon what he has. Given that Gollum does propose giving away the present, how would that make sense? And it makes sense if, deep down, even not so very deep down, Gollum really wants to get rid of it. Um, and this idea of chance, right? Of uh, the this sort of toss-up. It's as if Gollum is saying, let's see what happens. It's like, Gollum is making a leap of faith, right? Let's see if I'm meant to keep the ring or not. Let's play a riddle game. If I lose, I know that it will be... Uh, th that will give me an excuse, an impetus to give up the ring, which I might not give up myself necessarily. Um, Stephen asks, is Gollum being treated as an entirely different type of creature? Well, when he says, even a Gollum dare hardly cheat, I don't think so. I think... Uh, he means even somebody like Gollum, like not even a Gollum would uh, would do that. No, I don't think... Notice how it's still capitalized, like it's a proper noun. He's not saying, like, a Gollum, one of many Gollums. Um, I don't think that's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's saying there. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, so he imagines the effect of the ring actually leading Gollum to want, to really want to give it away. He goes much further with this. Um... Again, it's the riddle game is a cry for help by Gollum, right? And again, that fits much better with the uh, first edition Hobbit text. 
I know, said Gandalf, and that is why I said that Gollum's ancestry only partly explained events. There was, of course, something much more mysterious behind the whole affair, something probably quite beyond the design of the Lord of the Rings himself, peculiar to Bilbo and his private adventure. I can put it no clearer than by saying that Bilbo was meant to have the ring, and that he perhaps got involved in the quest of the treasure mainly for that reason, in which case you were meant to have it, which may or may not be a comforting thought, and there has always and there has also always been a queer fate over the rings on their own account. Remember the whole luck thing, right? They get lost and turn up in strange places. Fish eat them and puke them up again. The one had already slipped once from its owner and betrayed him to death. It had now slipped away from Gollum. But the evil they work, according to their maker's design, turns often to good that he did not intend, even to his loss and defeat. And that, too, may be a comforting thought. Or not. Hard to see, as Christopher says, hard to see how there could be any not about it, right? The idea that the evil of the enemy is going to lead to his loss or defeat sounds like a... A, an unequivocally comforting thought, frankly. I, I have to agree with Christopher on that one. Um, but um, I have a hard time untangling this. On the one hand, it sounds at first as if Gandalf is saying something like what he says in the published text, right? That there are the two powers at work here. The one is the power, you know, the, the, there's, the, there's the power of the ring, right? And the ring is making stuff happen, and it's, it's doing things to try to get to its master. But then there's this other power at work, uh, which is not the power of the ring or its maker, which is working against it and, and is, is what brings Bilbo into the picture. It sounds at first like he's saying that, but then it doesn't. Right. Um, it when he talks about when he shifts to talking about the power of the rings. There has also always been a queer fate over the rings. They get lost and turn up in strange places. So he, he's talking about what the ring does. Right. Um, but the evil they work according to their maker's design turns often to good that he did not intend. So it's not the evil power of the rings is doing one thing and the other power at work is doing other things and undermining the things that the ring is doing, right? It's not just that. It's that the things that the ring does are themselves being manipulated by providence and turned often to good that they don't intend, right? So again, it's not like they're two separate actions. It's the same action. The very queer, th- you know, the the very things, the queer things that the rings do, right, according to their queer fate, um, are the things that the power does in order to bring it about. And he points to Bilbo finding the ring as an example, right? The ring is doing its thing, right? Betraying, slipping away from its owner, attempting to betray its owner, right? Um, yes. And then Providence manipulates that. Yes, it uh, it uh, uh, slips away from its owner, and Bilbo finds it, right? Um, and thus, the thing that the ring brought about, its departure from Gollum, is the very thing that, against the intention or design of the maker, turns evil to good, right? Brings the evil to a good that it didn't intend, right? Um... In the, at the end of the day, I don't know that he is saying something terribly different than what is said uh, in the final published Lord of the Rings, but it's interesting to me 
how he says it, right? The evil they work according to their master's design turns often to good that he did not intend. This is certainly true in The Lord of the Rings, right? No more... Uh, there is no place where that is more obviously true than, of course, in the final destruction of the ring, um, uh, uh, which, of course, is brought about by the evil power of the ring itself. Um, so that evil undoes itself and brings about good that it does not intend is a fundamental principle of, of the Tolkienian world, which goes all the way back to the music of the Ainur in the Book of Lost Tales, Volume 1. You know, in like some of the earliest stories that he ever wrote about this stuff, um, Melkor is told this after the music of the Ainur. Something almost exactly like this. Yeah, Sharon was thinking of exactly the same thing, that reference to the music of the Ainur. And uh, Oliver, too, thinking about that, that, that same thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, again... It's clear that he doesn't depart from this principle, but it is interesting that he uh, he ends up kind of simplifying it um, by Gandalf in this in this parallel passage in the published text, just talking about the two different powers at work. Um, yeah, Tony. Yeah, Tony wonders if uh, the Ring thought that leaving Gollum would result in Gollum's death. Right? Yeah. Did the Ring attempt to betray Gollum to his death but fail? Yeah, maybe. It's a little hard to see, especially in the published text. Um, certainly hard to imagine how the ring thought it was going to lead to Gollum's death at Bilbo's hands, right? Uh, I mean, Bilbo was the guy standing there with the sword, and he could certainly off him, I guess, if he chose to, but there, it never really threatens to go in that direction in, in the original Chapter 5. Um, the goblins, that seems a little bit more likely, but yeah, who knows? Um, and we're running out of time. One more. I loved this bit. What was the first riddle Gollum asked? Do you remember? says Gandalf. Yes, said Bingo, thinking. What has roots as nobody sees, is higher than trees, up up it goes, and yet never grows. More or less right, said Gandalf. Right? Almost exactly right. Um is taller than trees, was Gollum's original verb. But other than that, he's got it, pretty much. Um, Roots and mountains. But as a matter of fact, I have not had to do much guessing uh, from hints of that kind. Okay, Gandalf, what are you up to here? Notice how Gandalf... First of all, I love the fact that Gandalf goes back to the riddles and is like, it's all in the riddles, right? It's perfectly obvious if you just pay careful attention to the riddles. Of course, like, you know, if you've read my book, you know, I'm like, preach it, Gandalf, absolutely. Uh, But I love that Gandalf actually does an explicit close reading. Well, okay, he's not very explicit. He is explicitly doing a reading, but he doesn't explicitly spell his own reading out, right? Roots and mountains. Okay, give us more, Gandalf. Explain exactly what you mean there. Um, it's about the roots and beginnings thing, right? It, 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 it betrays who Gollum is and where he come from and tells us things about his personality. Um, he doesn't explain. Christopher points out that this is not really very explicit. It's not very clear um, what kind of guessing Gandalf would have done exactly. Yeah, Yana says, it's like Gandalf read my book. Exactly, right? Yeah, it's fun. Um, but um, 
Uh, but anyway, yeah, so lovely that Gandalf was doing the same kind of analysis, um, even though it's going to get cut, and he never really does spell it out here. But I love that fact, um, that he felt that Gollum was really revealing himself. Um, and I can't help but wish they had taken this conversation a little bit further, frankly. Um, but, uh, okay, last point. I promise we'll stop after this. But this is terrible cried Bingo. Far worse than I feared. Oh, Gandalf, what am I to do? For now I am really afraid. What a pity that Bilbo didn't stab the beastly creature when he said goodbye. What nonsense you do talk sometimes, Bingo, said Gandalf. Pity? It was pity that prevented him. And he could not do so without doing wrong. It was against the rules. If he had done so, he would not have had the ring. The ring would have had him at once. He would have been enslaved under the necromancer. "'Of course, of course,' said Bingo. "'What a thing to say of Bilbo, dear old Bilbo. "'But I am frightened, and I cannot feel any pity for that vile Gollum.'" Now, I urge you to remember, Bingo and Gandalf are talking about the original Hobbit story, not the revised chapter 5. The pity that Bilbo shows to Gollum in the revised version of The Hobbit that we all know and love is a more extraordinary act of pity. Um, that is to say, it would have been much more understandable had Bilbo stabbed the vile creature when he had the chance, right, as Frodo says in the published Fellowship of the Ring, um, had he stabbed Gollum and killed him. It would have been understandable, right? Um, the rationale that he himself gives for it in the published Hobbit makes sense, right? Like, he means to kill me, right? I... He has to get out. Gollum is in the way. What else can he do, right? Uh, you know, this creature is, is, is preventing his escape. He must escape. This creature is trying to kill him anyway. Um, he should just stab him, right? Killing Gollum in that context is wrong, but it's not quite so obviously wrong. What Bingo is suggesting here, remember, as I explained, and as many of you have read, in the first edition of The Hobbit, Gollum is quite friendly, and Gollum cheerfully leads him up and says goodbye, and they leave on the best of terms. Bingo is therefore having to imagine Bilbo just stabbing, what, in the back or something, this perfectly friendly guy who was super worried about breaking the rules and kept apologizing again and again, right? And Bilbo's going to be like, yeah, thanks, buddy, stab, right? I mean, that's... It is, And that's why I think Bingo says, what a thing to say of Bilbo, right? Um, because really, he does have to imagine Bilbo as simply a murderer. Right? I mean, just no, it's the, you couldn't say it's self-defense. You couldn't say, like, oh, you got to do what you got to do. There was no, there was no got to do about it, right? I mean, if, in order for Bilbo to stab the beastly creature, he would have just had to be like, I don't like you, you know, I, I, you're a nasty, slimy creature, and I'm going to stab you. Right, I mean, that's... I, I, that's the brief little kind of fantasy that Bingo is sort of suggesting here, and that's why he takes it back. Of course, of course, obviously. Uh, he couldn't really uh, have done that. And you're right, Yana, of course, to remind us that it's still true that the original Gollum was still planning to eat... Uh, Bilbo, there is no if 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 he had won the game, um, he's not just a, a totally benevolent, friendly, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, cuddly little creature from the beginning. Um, 
But again, there's no situation in which attacking... Uh, Bilbo is never in a situation where attacking Gollum could even be justifiable, whereas he very much is in the revised version. And his choice to say, no, even though it's probably going to cost me, even though I, you know, it's, it may mean my death, it probably will mean my failure, um, I... Um, um, I, I'm not going to do it, right? It, that is a leap in the dark. It is a leap of faith by Bilbo. It's his act of pity is a a much bigger deal. It's a much harder choice for Bilbo in the revised version. Um, he could not do so without doing wrong. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and and I love Gandalf's phrasing here. He would, yeah, if he had done so, he would not have had the ring. The ring would have had him at once, right? He would immediately have become enslaved under the necromancer. Um, yeah, good. Okay, um, I'm gonna end there. I gotta, gotta, gotta go through 15 of my 17 passages. It's not too bad. Um, I'll finish up the last two next time, and we'll 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 carry on. We're gonna pick up the pace a little bit here. I hope to cover two chapters for next time. Fingers crossed. Um, but uh, thanks everybody for joining me here tonight. Another fun class as always. Look forward to seeing you guys again next Wednesday. And um, I was looking ahead. I'm gonna be doing some traveling at the end of uh, in the latter part of April. So we'll probably have to miss some weeks there. But I'm hoping maybe we'll even be able to finish before then uh so we'll see thank you everybody uh this has been a lot of fun i'll see you next week as we will continue to plow ahead on phase two thanks everybody and good night bye now